I have a story about three uh, bad brothers. Three bad brothers. Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. No, is that a thing? Am I supposed to know that? Is this like a Game of Thrones thing? Three bad brothers. That's everywhere now. I'm sick of hearing about Game of Thrones, by the way. So I bring it up. You do not watch it? No, I don't. I've never watched it and not into it. And it's like the new thing that everyone like swears you have to watch before it was what breaking bad. And now it's game of Thrones and, and what's that a Netflix one? The stranger things. That's the other one that everyone's like, Oh, you have to watch this. You're nobody unless you watch this. Hmm. Well, you're nobody if you don't listen to the good day, sir podcast. No. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> no. So I have a, I have a, I, I have a story. I'm not going to say it's a cre- It's a story about being creepy and it, it actually worked in my favor. A creepy company worked in my favor. <laughs> and that is, uh, do, you, do you use like the reward We're programs? We're all heading to creepy. We all know oh, that. that. was delayed. No, no. Do, do, you, do you use the reward programs? So, let, let me no, back I up. don't. Well, I, I, actually I do because I use my wife's. <laughs> well, I, I just put in my phone number. But anyways, let me back up on this question. So my wife is really good with money. And she's really good at finding ways to save money. And she tries to impose that on That was sometimes. an important clarification, by the way. Why? She's, well... <laughs> Being good at money, that can mean good at spending it, good at saving it. Yeah, so. no, she's good at saving money. Um, and she always tries to get me to go to the store. Like, if I have to go to the store, I'm like, do you need anything? She's like, yeah, go get me this, this, and this, and the coupon's right there. And I'm like, I'm not using the coupon. To me, a coupon is a hassle. And she's like, that's 25 cents. I'm like, that's 25 cents. To her, it's like, that's 25 cents. To me, it's like, oh, that's 25 cents. Well, did she did she grow up poor? Uh, her mom was part of the depression era type stuff. Okay. And so that carried over into the way they lived. But <laughs> in my experience, the people that grew up that way, they, they can become wealthy and they still can't help themselves on wanting to get good deals on everything. Yeah. Well, fortunately, she's not like one of those crazy coupon people who, who just will buy a bunch of stuff. Because, Do you remember that craze? That yes. Came, yeah. That that was, was crazy. They were just buying a bunch of stuff they didn't need oh, yeah. and then trying to find something to do with it. I'm just, uh, any, either way. Um, so anyway, she's always trying to get me to use coupons, and I noticed lately she stopped trying to get me to use coupons. Um, she never asked me anymore. I thought, okay, I won that battle. I made mm. such a big stink. You've given up your privacy because you're using those, uh, <laughs> those store cards or whatever they are, right? And then, and then, like, she, I came back the other day from the store, and she was grinning, and 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 I was like, she was grinning in a way that I had to ask, "What? Well, why are you grinning? Did I did I buy something wrong or what? Are you looking at what I bought?" And she goes, "No, it applied the coupon." I was like, I didn't take any coupons. And apparently there's an app for the grocery store. And it's, I did some research on it because I was like, this is really creepy. Because they, they, they saw what I bought and then they somehow knew to apply a coupon of something I bought from her app. Like her app was connected yeah. to our rewards mm-hmm. card system. Yep. And apparently it's an Albertsons thing. And then through that research, I realized Albertsons owns like every grocery store around me. They own like Market Street, mm. Safeway, Tom yeah. Thumb, the, name it. They probably own it. Market Street used to be independent, or they yeah. were owned by. Um, uh, uh, there was like some. It was st- a small. They yeah. were based out of Lubbock, so they weren't that big. <laughs> not <laughs> yeah, anymore. So, well, not anymore. Any, so, anyways, that, you know, it's this thing. No one wants to compete anymore. Yeah. No one wants to compete. Everyone was just, you know, they want to. Every industry wants to consolidate. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways, that I mean. If you had told me that story that, that um, you know, the company's looking at what I buy and applying coupons and things, I would think that was kind of creepy, but I, I think in this case, it kind of worked in my favor. Yeah. I don't know. Super creepy. To me, it's creepy that it is. I, I mean, went the, to the store and, and got a coupon for something I didn't want a coupon on. 
Maybe I wanted to pay full price. I don't know. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's creepy, but it's just it's um, it's annoying that pretty much everything you buy uh, there, you know, th- that data is being collected by really sophisticated marketing companies that are aggregate. Not only are they collecting your Albertsons data, but they're aggregating that with your Tom Thumb data, your Costco data. Well, that's, that's everything thing, you do. That's the thing that got to me because they could even correlate it with your online purchases. Yeah, because my, my wife sees it as, oh, I saved 25 cents. And I'm using 25 cents as a general number, but she's saying, oh, I saved 25 cents. In my head, I'm like, that coupon was tied to our reward system, was tied to our phone number, which tied to my contact info or her contact information, our house and everything. So now they know everything I bought. Now the, the grocery store knows everything we bought because we have the rewards program. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. But now that coupon is aware of my of of me being the one who purchased it. Normally, it's just something that goes to the register, and it gets taken off, and it's part of the bill. And I don't know if they have a way of reporting that. But either way, it's just like now it's directly tied to that. And now there's now with 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 all this data mining and everything, they really have a lot of information on me because I went and bought yep. some ice cream or something. And, and the problem is, you basically can't not use these store cards anymore because everything is essentially. M- artificially marked up unless you use the card. I mean, yeah. you get the, you know, member price if you use the card. Well, every non-member price is a joke. It's a rip Yeah, off. like I scan something and says savings a dollar. I'm like, holy crap, that, yeah. someone has to pay $2 for this? <laughs> yep. If they don't have a card? Now, the, what, the thing to do is go at, for every store that you need to use a card for. Just ask ask for a new one. Say, I, you know, I, just say, I don't have a, I've never done this membership thing before. Give me a new card. And they'll say, okay, we'll fill this out. And I think they want you to mail it or drop it up at the counter or something. Mm-hmm. Just don't fill it out. Uh, the only thing they ask you for is your phone number when you get the card. And I've heard people use fake so give numbers. So yes, give yeah. them a fake number and remember the number. Yeah. And then every time you, know, you go somewhere, because I don't carry those cards. I don't need a wallet full right. of these stupid cards. So yeah, just give them that fake phone number when you go in. And they're tracking data on no one, basically. I mean, they're... Tracking data on you, but they're they have they don't know anything about you. They right. don't even have your phone number. So unless they unless they're so badass, they could say, "Oh my gosh, this guy buys three of these bottles of wine every week, and like <laughs> the certain type of salami that must be Jeremy." <laughs> well, even uh, wine and salami. Huh? Total That's Wine a, has a rewards program, and they they know what I buy. <laughs> That's true, and I use theirs. But again, it, that's one of those things that I wish I. And in fact, I may not have. A lot of these, I think I did. I've done that. I just never, I never gave them the the completed card of my information. So, but yeah. they've got my phone number, which is all they need, really. Yeah. yeah. So whatever it sucks. Well, we're on the, while while we're on the subject of creepy, and since I didn't get to this last episode, did you did you see the articles on Google Glass two point No. Yeah. The glass holes are back with a vengeance. Well, not necessarily. Uh, so apparently, the the idea with this round of Google two point is that it might not be a good consumer product, but it might be a good a uh, business product, meaning that yeah, people in the, manufacturing... No, the, the Cisco techs can use their Salesforce yeah. Einstein service edition I was say, maybe to we're replace... wrong to criticize Salesforce <laughs> because Google Glass is coming and they're doing it. They're going to replace the blades. It's gonna, you're going to have a heads-up <laughs> display and it's going to tell you exactly which blade to replace, how to, un, how to unscrew a Phillips screw yeah. and pull the blade out and slide a new one in. Well, <laughs> and that was my thought too. But the, the article that I'm reading from did actually make a good case in, in certain situations like, well, we used to do white box manufacturing. We, we, we built systems to track all that. Well, I did. I'm, what, what would you do there? Which, well, I don't know which company you're talking about. Oh, the Ohio company. I don't know if we should name it. Oh, what did I do there? You did I, the website and everything. I, yeah, I, yeah. Before you Initially, got there. Initially, but then, yeah. I, then I switched into Six Sigma mode. That's right. But before you got there, I was responsible for all the whip stuff that happened. So I once the t- once the uh, 
order was printed for the custom build, I had to track all the inventory and all the different steps in the process. And within that, they had to scan it and I had to track certain things. And um, so this kind of expanded on that idea a little bit further in that rather than having a, a machine and you're scanning it, the Google Glass is on the person's head. They'd look at the machine. It would see the barcode. It would scan it. So it would check it into that what station. What if they turn around and look at someone else's machine real quick? And it, I mean, it's just... <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and, and for that build, the inventory list would be there. The instructions... Although I don't know about the instructions. But either way, they're, they're saying that it took... That it, it did improve productivity, at least for those type of situations where there's like really heavy custom builds going on where there, nothing's really set. Now, we did have lines in that in that company where it was all just... It was like we're building a hundred of the same thing, and they would just set up this one line, and everyone would just kind of go down the line. So there's really none of that. But for these really highly customized things that someone actually had to change or do something different for each one of those builds, this is where they were saying they'd get some performance improvement out of it. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that the creepy factor is still there, though. That uh, one of the suggestions at this company that implemented this was having a like a bar next to the restroom where people could hang up the glasses before they go into the restroom. Because people were kind of creeped out. Yeah. People, everyone's wearing right. glasses that can record stuff well, that's in why, the restrooms. I think that's why there was a general societal backlash against things like that. Yeah. Well, it's like the the, the Snapchat glasses. The, um, what, are they, what do they call those? The spectacles or what are the snap oh, spectacles? I heard about it, but I never really... I don't want you... Thing, though? Oh, yeah, yeah. Those I thought real. it was just like a fake thing. Or, no. Know, so people can walk around, you know, July. taking... The April 1st thing. Taking, you know, Snapchats of you without you really knowing, I guess. <laughs> That's creepy. It is. But anyway, so yeah, we, we might start to see uh, Google Glass come back. And what the interesting part is, this wasn't a Google thing. These were companies that took the technology, the original Google technology, and forced it to work for their businesses. Forced, created new technologies around it, created you know ways to interact with their systems, ways for it to read their data. It wasn't like Google said, hey, we want to do this uh, corporate thing. Because Google was so focused on the consumer end of things. They wanted they wanted it to replace phones. They wanted everyone to be wearing them. And it was companies you know, like this that said, let's let's see what this technology can do for us. And that's that's where it seemed that's where this came from, this whole 2.0 initiative. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting, too, that the company that invented it didn't really envision how this could work in that way. Well, I think when the, the initial versions of that came out, I mean— the machine learning and particularly like computer vision wasn't mm -hmm. where it is now. I mean, now computer vision's gotten really good and with basically armies of computer scientists who are in their, you know, basically 30s now who, who when they get their, when they went to their CS program, it, they, they were learning, you know, machine learning has been on the, on the, on the uh, not the syllabus, but the, the course program for, a mm -hmm. lot, you know, I think over 10 years now. So there's a lot of people that, that are trained in this that makes things like Google Glass, you know, way more applicable to actual to solving actual business problems. Yeah. You know, that reminds me, and I probably just didn't pay attention, but I don't recall seeing much about like the is it still called the Thundercloud or the IoT, you know, whatever it's called. At, at, as far uh, as I know, it's still Thunder. At Trailhead DX. I, just, I don't recall any talks or anything on that, but I if I probably just avoided them subconsciously. Um, speaking of Trailhead and whatever, we okay to switch topics yeah. here? So I've uh, I hadn't done much with DX. I mean, kind of you know, other than watched a couple of presentations on it. So mm -hmm. this morning I was like, well, I've got kind of a it's I've got a nice little point right now where I have a little had a little bit of time to experiment. So um, thought, well, I'll play with DX for a little bit. 
and I, I thought, well, I don't want to. I don't want to do this with a client's org right now, so I'm just going to do it with my dev org. So the first thing I discovered is that you can't use DX with a dev org unless I'm unless I'm not understanding something. But they do have. See, a, I'm still out of touch with DX. I'm not entirely sure what you can use it for. <laughs> like I had this whole misconception that, like, like I said, like I asked last time, you know, can I get a copy of my production and create a scratch org out of that? And I just had this like entire misconception about what I thought it was going to do for me. And and yeah. Actually, I, th I think that is actually a difficult, what you just described, which is my main use case, one of my main use cases. Yeah. As far as I understand right now, that's actually still difficult with DX. And yeah, and like I think I said this last time, and that, that I think that points to who, at least who this iteration of well, DX you is. You nailed for. it. Yeah. I, and I didn't know at the time, but I think you were right. So it's really easy to get started right now if you have an existing managed package. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't, so here's, here's the three ways you can get started, really. You have to have an existing managed package, or you have to have a package.xml that's got all the stuff you want in it. Well, and that's the hard part. Like, mm -hmm. like for example, the use case of, hey, uh, um, let me take my production org and push that all that metadata to a, uh, a scratch a scratch org. Well, now you have to get a package.xml that represents your entire production org. Well, that's that's actually the hard part. Yeah, I mean, that's the part that I want to automate that I don't have a great way to automate. I mean, there are tools to do that, and I, I do that, but... I can't. Apparently, I can't replace any of those things with DX yet, or or I, I have the, to find some way to to cobble these things all together. I or, thought the package system was different than the normal metadata package system. Well, and I, I mean, I just have to definitely preface this with like I still have not done anything useful with DX. I kind of got stuck in a way. I actually I just ran out of time, but um, it's okay. So let me let me back to my like. There's three ways to do this. So mm -hmm. existing managed package. So that's kind of an ISV thing, or some some big companies do managed packages. Um, I feel sorry for them, but um, or you give it a package.xml, which has got everything you want, mm -hmm. and and it's only going to pull down what's in there, what's in that package.xml. Um, or you can go into your production org and create a an unmanaged package. You don't have to make it managed, but then you have to load it up with all the things you need. Well, and also, I mean, have you seen that UI to add things to a no. to a pack? I mean, it's it's kind of like the it's a very similar to the uh, the change set UI where you add things to a change. Oh, set. to the pack. I mean, you okay. have to go. Th you have to go yeah. through that process to build your package up. I'm like, well, this. But I thought, D but that's not DX though. That's just no. That's D I mean, that's DX. Well, it yes, it is. D I mean, that's not creating that package on DX. But DX needs you to build a package so it knows what to get from your org. It'll get everything you put in that. So package. it doesn't have some kind of so CLI like, or something that can. No, the CLI. You like when you issue the command, whatever it is, for something to. To pull down your metadata, you give it. A you have to give it one of those three things. Yeah. And so in this case, I thought, well, okay, I'll um, I'll use um, my existing um, ant, you know, kind of migration tool mm -hmm. tools and everything to to build the package.xml. Actually, I think I, I think in this case, um, I just use Illuminated Cloud to because when you you can select like what you want to subscribe to in Illuminated Cloud, mm -hmm. and one of the options is just everything. And so I just said, okay, yeah, subscribe to everything because I want to, my use case is, I want to, I want my production org and a scratch org, right? And then I want to do full deployments from sandboxes to, in, in, a, in a deployment pipeline from, you know, dev sandboxes to testing sandboxes to QA sandboxes and then to production, right? Mm -hmm. That's what we all want to be able to do, basically. Right. So I used, yeah, I used Illuminated Cloud to grab everything out of my production org. And, and cause, but all I needed was it from it was the resulting package.xml, right? So, so I ended up with a package.xml, and what it does then, you have to say, okay, I don't remember what the command is, but you tell DX to, um, to go, okay, now go operate on, 
this metadata I just gave you, whether it's the package.xml or you pointed it to a package, right. and it converts that to some format. Um, I don't really know what's entailed in that. And I also kind of got stuck because I, I finally ended up, I, I just, oh, by the way, um, I have to be fair here. So the, it, you, it, I don't think it works on a dev edition, but they do have a link to, you can create a 30-day, which sucks it's only 30 days, uh, a trial org, I think an enterprise trial org that's got DX already enabled in it. Hmm. Or it's got the dev hub already enabled. You have to have dev hub, and dev hub is not available in a dev org, which makes zero sense. <laughs> Just even saying that, those words don't <laughs> sound right. <laughs> you can't that, use that, the dev hub in a dev org. You have to have a non-dev org. Is a dev org. hub, is that only available to ISVs? To the- no, no, no. It, go to any any enterprise or unlimited org now, and you'll in, in settings. Just go to uh-huh. settings, and you'll dev hub is under like developer, whatever it is. Huh. Okay, I've never seen that. So yep, and it's just um, you just enable. It's you can only do one thing, which is enable the dev hub. And once you do that, then you can create. You have to do that, and then hook your hook your your CL your DX CLI up to your dev hub, mm-hmm. and then it and then that's. I guess that's what it uses for the source of production, but that's also it, where you have to hook it up. Is yeah, yeah, some, yeah. Some, because some kind of app every token or something that it, I I don't know, but that's and when you create scratch orgs, they're associated uh-huh. to that dev hub. So the, so those scratch orgs are associated to that production org. Huh. So I'm not really sure again how sandboxes come into this, and I'm, I'm still not sure how yet how DX and and like this, especially this command line tooling. I'm not sure how it solves really any of the problems that I want to that I was hoping it would solve. Mm-hmm. Um, the one thing I still know for sure that I like the concept of is scratch orgs, but it's they're not making it easy for me to use scratch orgs that I can see yet. I mean, it's still just easy for me to keep doing what I'm doing, but um, yeah. And so, in order to install the command log, I thought, oh, this is just like a, an npm install or git clone or something like that. No, it's a package. It's a pkg file. At least on the Mac, a, a pkg file that you have to download in you know manual UI. Installation. I think there's some. I think there's an, some option. Like there's a link you can you can download it. And I don't know, it just seems like there'd be some way to. And like, how do I download updates to this? Does it update itself? Actually, I think it does update itself because I think I ran an update and it downloaded like many, many, many megabytes of stuff. It took a while for it to like do an initial like update oh, of itself. Yeah. Download a bunch of crap. I um, gotta imagine it's got its own update. Just like, well, I don't think it's automatic though, right? You have to tell it to update. Just like the like what like the Heroku CLI or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still like, it's still in the DX documentation. It, it tells you, like, anytime it's doing any of the metadata stuff, you can only retrieve or deploy up to 10,000 files at a time or a total of 400 megabyte at one time. Well, I've, I have the problem on. And, well, it depends and, on what they consider a file, because I, I thought. The, that, no, 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 not the file. The, and all, the total, all the files of your metadata can't. In 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 aggregation can't be. I know, but if they're going to get more granular with the metadata, that wouldn't that mean more files, and so thus you have a greater chance of hitting that limit. I, possibly. I mean, I, like I said, I've had I've had clients. I don't think I have any right now, but I have in the past where our deployments were over four hundred megabytes. Just a lot of static resources. I, I guess my my litmus test is: Can Financial Force use this? And you know, they've got to have, they've got to be hitting that limit, right? Yeah. Well, you would think so. I don't know. I mean, you're not going to hit it with code. I think the only way to get that big is probably with static resources or massive documents, well, perhaps. Say, static static resources can get pretty big. Oh yeah. In fact, I <laughs> I discovered that the the Lightning Design System was pretty heavy with the image with the image assets. Like I I, I had included it in one of my static resources way before you could access the the um, design system through an Apex tag. 
And I'd, ma- I'd added some new images to one of my resources that had that in it, and it was too big, compressed, to upload. As a single Santa Cruz As source? a single Santa Cruz, okay. which is like the yeah. 5 meg limit. I was like, is that the limit on Santa Cruz sources? Yeah. No way, it's more than that. I, it was something like that. Yeah. I hit the limit either way, okay. compressed. And I was like, how is that possible? And then I looked, and I was like, oh, crap, all those images from the mm. Lightning Design System. Oh, wow. That's yeah, power. and so me adding a few other bigger mm. images... Uh, Put us over the limit. That's that's this is the thing. I mean, this is just you know one out of a thousand examples of things you run into when your model is uh, limit don't scale, limiting instead of scaling. Like, yeah, so don't, let, don't, don't let me the have. Yeah, I mean, yeah, package. exactly. I mean, <laughs> and because these, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not like we're doing extreme things. I mean, having more than four hundred megabytes in in image assets is not an extreme thing. Well, no, especially if you're being responsive and you're trying to, you know, scale those graphics. Yeah, because you might have, I mean, you might be doing, what are they called, responsive images or whatever, where you've got, you know, five different versions of each image depending on device and and pixel density and all that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, and not everything can be solved with with the uh, SVG. So, I mean, there's still a need for, you know... And the other thing, JPEG, and of course, so the, the answer that people give you is, well, just um, split up your deployment. Well, okay, so that means several different things. One, I have to find some way to split this up. And... Yeah. It actually becomes very difficult because of the, you know, draw the dependency graph of Salesforce metadata API. There's lots of things that depend on like profiles and profiles depend on other things and, mm-hmm. and templates depend on documents and static resources. There's just this massive, and you can't, you can't untangle this thing. If, if you if you are doing whole atomic deployments, like, you know, not piecemeal stuff, but, you know, we, again, we have like that scenario where you have a build pipeline and, you know, you, when you get to that QA and you're like, hey, QA passed, everyone signed off on it. Like mm-hmm. you want that whole entire build as it is because it's that's the blessed build. You want that in production now. Well, if you're doing piecemeal, there's no way you could guarantee that. You've got to deploy the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's just no, there's no tooling for splitting that up. So number one, you, you kind of can't tease that apart, not in any, I think, sane way that is fair or valuable to anyone. Um, this coming but from also, the guy that wants an npm style package manager. Well, because I think it solves. I mean, it solves a lot of these problems. I mean, again, well, you, you can't ever deploy a full known build to Salesforce. There's always there's always this cross interdependency, and once you implement something like that, and other people try to inject their code with similar dependencies, and they're all sharing that same dependency because they all share the same version, then that version flips because someone else installs something and it, it doesn't manage the versions very well. What happens? Yeah, well, so the not, jo- to, not to get us off topic, right. but I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, I, 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 I can see see the problem you're describing getting infinitely worse if something like that existed or were to be brought into the fold. Yeah. Well, I use. I mean, no matter what solution you do, you have to do things right. I mean, sure, you can, and that's it, and it's that argument with like, oh, well, people complain about Maven. Well, of course they do, and, and Maven's not a perfect thing by any means, but it's a thousand times better than not using anything for that. Uh, and even you know people that complain about Maven, they still use it every day. And 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 ninety percent of the problems, quote unquote, I'm doing big scare quotes here with Maven is people doing it wrong. In yeah. fact, one of the things that the, that the the legal argument guys claim about or complain about Maven is just how people don't know how to use versions right with Maven. Software engineers are doing it wrong. It's not. Maven's fault. It just happens to be a Maven-related well, so, problem. Yeah, sometimes or, it's just people being dumb, and sometimes people just forgetting to. Change the version, or, or yeah, or they they don't understand how to use the flexible version ranges, or you know any of that yeah. kind of stuff. That's um, anyway. Uh, the other problem with trying to split up so that you get under the four hundred meg limit is deploying. So like you'd have to split up to deploy. Okay, so let's say I have to split it into three different pieces, or let's just say two. Okay, I can I'm able to split it into two deployments. I de- so I, okay, so I deploy the first one. Let's say it goes through. Mm-hmm. I probably got lucky. 
because I'm already deploying half of my bits, right? Let's say it goes through though. Okay, now I'm going to deploy the second one. Well, if I have a lot of, if, first of all, we've already established this is a pretty big org because my mm -hmm. deployment's 600 meg. So that probably means there's a ton of code and a ton of tests, which probably take two or three hours to build. So until I get that second deployment in, my system is in a half deployed state for hours. Yeah. And what if that second one fails? And now we have to take the time to figure out what happened, then run all tests again in a sandbox or whatever, right? And and or and, and then deploy to production, which again has to deploy and all the tests have to run again. I mean, you could be you could be talking half a day that you're in. Well, that's why you need a full well, and, production environment. And that also like goes back to what Salesforce, there's there's no rollback. You're not rolling anything, you're half deployed. You you would like to just say, well, shit, just roll me back then. You can't do that either. There's no rollback. So that's this is not uh, this has got to this needs to be solved. Again, if, if we're serious about building real systems on Salesforce, then this kind of thing needs to be solved because it's um, it's just a requirement. I mean, well, I think we'll I think we'll get there, but I think I think the approach that's the the path that it's going to take is through through ISVs. I don't I don't think this technology is really being made for us. I think it's being made for ISVs. Yeah, no, you made, you made that argument. I don't quite understand that. I mean, I don't... Oh, you're saying... Yeah, but I think ISVs have the... Well, that's a good point, actually, because once ISVs upload their blessed package, then they're done, right? I mean, they're at that point, it's... Clients can install their package, and it's, it's either well, I mean, all or none. Well, I mean, the whole concept of the scratch org and the way the way you use it, the way you can set up different settings and all that kind of stuff, that you know, that caters to ISVs who need to be able to test how their how their code is going to work in these environments with different features enabled, disabled, you know, all those kind of things. That's yeah. that's something that you don't have today unless you unless you manually set try to set that up and you maintain all these different orgs. Oh, that's, not even I think sure. that's what people do. They, yeah. <laughs> so you have like a hundred different sandboxes, each with a different switch flipped. Yeah. I think they have uh, that or some kind of, and, and uh, partners have, you know, in this part, what do they call it? The, oh, I think that's the environment hub, I think is what uh, partners have. I use this thing quite regularly. I should know, I should know what it's called. I think it's the environment hub, but uh, partners can get in there and create all kinds of um, uh, dev orgs that have like more space, trial orgs of all kinds of different shapes. Now what I, do, I don't think the environment hub gives you a lot of, Control over feature enablement. I still think you have to like, kind of like contact yeah, Salesforce. You, for yeah, that. yeah. So yeah, this is. I mean, it's definitely. There's definitely features you're like, oh, that's. They must have. They probably made that with ISVs in mind, or either that, or it's just a feature that's. It's going to benefit ISVs more than just you know standard enterprise shops. But but in general, I mean, the idea of a scratch org, I think, is hugely beneficial to all all users of Salesforce, not just ISVs. That's yeah, just, I, I, I get that. I, I mean, I, I get how we can piggyback off of that. I just think that when it comes to who the audience is for this, I think it's definitely ISVs. Now, I think there's things that are going to happen within it be, because we're all coding in the same environment. We're all using a lot of the same tools where, you know, in the Venn diagram, there'll be some overlap and that's where we'll, that's where the happy soup is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I can see how, you know, it's not like they're coming to me and saying, hey, you build a lot of stuff and you get that into production, you know, what What are your problems? No, no, they're asking, the, it's the ISVs that are screaming and saying, hey, I can't get my code into this environment. I built this package and it won't work in this environment or it doesn't work in this environment or, you know, I'd have no good way of testing this or there's a customer with this setup and they have issues and I can't replicate that because I don't have an environment like that. What do I do? Right. You know? Yep. No, I hear you. Anyway, so I, and I ran out of time this morning. I had to get to actual work that pays me money. <laughs> to so. actually do stuff. Yeah. So, but I will, I will report back as I 
because I would like to get at least a client um, on on DX. Just got to figure out how to how to it, in, it, integrate it, it in. I mean, it's all still beta though. There's really no. It's supposed to be not any uh, real production stuff going on, is there? I don't know. I mean, it's beta. It is beta. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know whether beta is safe to use or not. But it's, it's not like it's for runtime. It's for hell. Lightning was beta, <laughs> and it changed a lot. Well, lightning, in the last year. lightning. If they don't call it beta, they, I mean, lightning is still beta. It may not have. They may not be calling well, it's it beta GA now, buddy. <laughs> exactly. No, it's, not a, it's, it's, it's not a beta. It's yeah. a GA. As 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 much as it's improved, it's still. I mean, simply by the fact that it's not even it's not even finished yet. It's not even near complete. How could it not well, be beta? I, I guess my point in making that statement is that people who did were early adopters of Lightning, you know, there was no concept of locker service, and then all of a sudden, the next version comes and there's locker service, and everyone's scrambling to try to figure out. Except you can set you can set your version back and you know avoid locker service for the next five years and have <laughs> un- insecure code. I guess. <laughs> well, I'm just saying. I, I don't totally don't understand. Like either either that's a security problem that we need to fix and it should apply to everyone or not. I mean, if you can just roll your version back to version 38 or whatever it is and like it gets you out of lock, your component no longer has to do Docker service and anyone who uses that component now is compromising their org, like that shouldn't be a, that shouldn't be a thing. Either this yeah. is a security problem or not. I, but I don't... I guess I'm just saying go for it. You probably yeah, understand more. Go about for it and, and st- stay plugged into the forums and make it better so that when it's not beta and after you guys make all your mistakes, I can yeah. I can just do it the right way the first time. But anyway, uh, y- yes, DX is beta, but it's it, again it's used for uh, non uh, production systems, right? In fact, I don't even think you can. I still don't even know how to use the DX to deploy to production yet. So I think it's I ha- it's used for developer time things, not not runtime, not in production. So. Did, did they give any indication? Um, on on that of of who's who's using it, like I'm sure they piloted this with somebody or a few well, people. Technically, I was in the pilot, but I just didn't. Well, no, I mean like I was not. not I, I, I mean that not. was kind of like an open like community pilot, but I'm like usually before they even talk about this stuff, they they talk. They have someone very specific that they work with with a bunch of NDAs who can't even. Yeah, you know, oh, I'm sure they, the they probably did. I'm, and I'm sure they there's probably like a small group of. But um, usually, those like people a, end up at like events like Trailhead where they say, "Yeah, we we were part of this very." You know, early early pilot, and these are the things that we learned and we we figured out. And did, was there any of that, or was I, it all still very much? I didn't ask that question, and <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I, I doubt it's. I mean, if they did, I'm sure it's not some you know big secret. I mean, that's kind of just no. I just mean usually that. those people that were in that environment, like a testimonial. They like, yeah, they'll like, they'll go up and do a testimonial. They'll show their experience, or the you know they'll do some kind of presentation that says, "Here's what we did with it." I didn't see that, but I also didn't. I didn't go to any customer led talks, mm. not by choice, just by. The ones I picked were none of them were none. Of, oh, they were all run by Salesforce people. Hmm. Uh, I think with the exception of one, maybe, but I think I walked out of that one because it was bad. <clears throat> anyway, okay. Well, that's all I have on DX. You just—I was—I was hoping you'd solve my worlds. Yeah, I might one of these days. Give me some time. <laughs> we have no time. Yeah. Um. One thing we, this is probably boring, but um, we didn't, I don't think we really talked about, no, this is a couple, um, I don't know, about a month or so ago, but you know, Oracle had just a blowout quarter. I mean, their uh, revenues were overall rising. It's interesting, their, their, their license revenues are still dropping a little bit, but the cloud revenues are just blowing it out. And uh, Where's the button you're supposed to play? You can't do that with Salesforce. <laughs> am I? Blowout quarters. Oh. Can't do that with Salesforce. Oh. <laughs> it seems that that can't be done. You can't do this with Salesforce. Well, I kid, I kid. 
Oh, you're kidding me. I don't, I don't have anything about uh, gap or non-gap on my soundboard. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, they're, they're just, you know, I think people were concerned. There was a concern whether Oracle was going to be able to turn this corner and transition to cloud. And so it looks really I think good. That was, well, I, I, I could see how that, I see the concern, but I also see the, the hand that they, that they, the, they dealt, they showed, they played. I mean, they really leveraged their legacy customers. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of stronger. Oh, it. this is enterprise yeah. software. I mean, they I mean, it's all... It's almost hard <clears throat> to give them credit for, for the growth because was, they basically just kind of said, yeah, we're moving you to our data center. That's like, it's, that's like saying it's hard for um, Salesforce having 90% renewals on its contracts. Well, uh, you know, look at, <laughs> look at the tactics they've been using. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. I like, I like getting stakes. <laughs> no, at some point, you have to start buying the stakes. Oh yeah, <laughs> it changes. Yes, it's, it's all fun before you sign up, and they're buying Sit you stacks. You unbuckle your belt. Yeah. Like, oh, thanks for dinner, and the, they just look at you and slide the check over. Yeah, yes, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> you didn't want that twelve percent mandatory uh, license increase this year, did you? <laughs> but no, so that you know, it's looking good, and so I, I think uh, they they eased the uh, stock market's concerns about that, so that you know they've had. I think their their share price is up like about thirty percent this year. Uh, so anyway, that's just all to lead into the fact that SAP just released their earnings, which were uh, revenue was up ten percent, but they had a huge again a huge boost in cloud. And I haven't followed their cloud stuff at all. Really? And of course, everyone's doing cloud, right? So well, I haven't even, followed even their these, cloud because they they were one of the ones that just did not do it right. They didn't implement it right. It just didn't work. No one was buying it. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the, the I guess the initial versions of QuickBooks Online were literally in a. Uh, what do you was it call like a it? Java plugin? No, no, no. It worse. It was what was the? Um, it only ran on IE, and it oh, was the uh, ActiveX. Or yeah, yeah, it was ActiveX. It was like an ActiveX <laughs> wrapper that literally ran the entire like Windows, you know, <laughs> QuickBooks binary and in, in the browser. Yeah, uh, I remember doing that. It, it is ActiveX, right? Because I, I remember it is. Uh, I remember having yeah, some client way back when make me make me. I mean, I'm, I'm using the words make because they made me do an ActiveX component. And I was like, you know, this is... Because at that time, there was a bunch of other browsers. I was, I was trying to be conscious of supporting different browsers. They're like, nope, make this a component. Did they, did they bust out the whip and make, make you... Uh, pretty much. I was on site, remote, and I was like, I guess I'm stuck in their, their highly secure building and I'm going to write an ActiveX component. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I, I remember just jacking around trying to uh, create an ActiveX component. I was using, I think, um, what was it? Like ATL, which was like a C++... Mm-hmm. Um, like oh I don't know like a uh, like a C plus plus templates for creating uh, ActiveX components but it was just like I had no idea what I was doing so I failed and went and did something else. <laughs> anyway, um, well, no, the problem with those things they memory leak all over the place. I mean you you just had to be really careful with them. They would blow up all over the place. Well, probably because they were <laughs> they were written in in C uh, and so or C plus plus and you know not these are not memory managed languages and they're they're. Susceptible to those kind of bugs more so than other one, other more modern memory managed languages. <clears throat> all right. So anyway, that's uh, all to say that uh, SAP right released their earnings and the cloud's really good. Also, they um, you've heard of this Hana thing they have right before, which is apparently some oh yeah super elaborate, crazy high scale high performance in memory database thing mm-hmm. or something. But anyway, they have a, something called S slash four Hana, which they've had a lot of uh, SAP for up, uptake Hana? on and whatever. But anyway, so yes, uh, I just kind of want to make the point that SAP is uh, is definitely doing cloud and seem to be, seem to be making it work as well. You just too wonder. Bad, too bad Oracle didn't 
didn't doesn't have a product called Hana because then they could be Oh Hana. Well, I just remember they could they could be the Oh Hana. Ah, yeah, yeah. Or no, it was it. It was. Uh, do you listen to Ben Thompson? You know who Ben Thompson is, right? Don't you subscribe to his news thing? Um, what is it? Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of it. I don't know. Um, Stratechery. Stratechery. You ever heard of no. that? Okay. He also has a podcast, I think, by the same name. And you know, he was talking about about like six months ago how Oracle was just this um, entrenched enterprise company with you know completely set up wrong and would just not be able to transition to cloud. So found that find that interesting, and and he definitely makes some good points, but. Uh, well, I mean, the same could have been said about Microsoft, and you know they've done they've done pretty well in transition. God, of course, they had to get rid of the kind of the the old the old suits and bring in some new suits, but uh, yeah, and it's possible, which is hard to do. And I and they seem to have done that effectively. And since you brought them up, let's uh, let's segue to Microsoft. Uh, just more of stuff that I don't really know what I'm talking about here, but they uh, they have um, so they've had a, I guess Azure support for Kubernetes for a while, which is seems to be the the container orchestration tool that has just off it, it's just it's uh done it's lapped everyone, you know. But it, it's I don't not know what Docker the hell. lightweight containers. No, it is. It is. No, it's not Docker lightweight It's Microsoft <laughs> lightweight containers. And that's just that isn't that's not as fun to say. No, it's it's Docker lightweight containers by Microsoft. I know. They always yeah. but they, they Docker always, lightweight containers. <laughs> at least Oracle just flat out said Docker. They didn't try to say Oracle Docker or anything like that. They Microsoft likes you to can't to, do this with sales. Microsoft tries. Microsoft and other people try to rebrand things and make it seem like it's their technology. Well, and I would say, even even on that note though, I think that Microsoft's gotten way better about that. So they've they've running so they're running so Kubernetes. Anyway, for people who don't know, it's it's a it's from Google and it's just a way to orchestrate um, your containers, right? So tip, mm-hmm. an app, you know, typical you know big apps going to have all kinds of containers, ones that run databases and naming services and search services and cache services and your your web tier and your you know your whatever right so it's got all That's these containers, containers and they've all got to be able to scale independently but still communicate and they've got to you've got to set up networking so they can see each other and there's just all all kinds of stuff right um you have to have a tool to do that because it's you know it'd be impossible to roll that on your own the initial thing was um or at least the for, when i well there's it's probably not the initial thing the one that i was initially aware of was um docker compose or is it uh swarm i can't remember but and it's you know that's fine. In fact, I use Compose often when I'm when I do Docker stuff. Um, but Kubernetes is just. It seems like Docker has not even tried to counter it. I mean, Kubernetes just swept in about a, a couple of years ago and just has run away with the container orchestration space. I don't understand. But anyway, so Microsoft for a while has had Azure, you know, Kubernetes what as a service or whatever. But uh, and I'm try- and I tried to read and understand what the hell this was. They announced uh, I think it was today or yesterday, but something that's called the Microsoft Azure Container Instances ACI, Azure Container Instances. Oh, that doesn't roll off. Well, I thought they've already had Kubernetes, so this must be some grand, bigger, even new thing. No, it's actually the opposite. It's it's a real simple container thing, and it seems like it's all about simplicity. So it lets you spin up a single container. This is not about orchestration or anything. Single container. Yeah, mm-hmm. you choose how much memory and CPU cores and whatever you want. And it's they're built it's built by the second. So I think don't Amazon instances like the, the VM instances, I mean, I think they build you by the hour for those. So if you spin it up for two minutes, you oh. just got billed for an hour of it. So you might as well have it up for an hour, right? And these, you know, are built by the second. And of course, uh, and I haven't used that service, but in general, you know, you can you can it takes oh I could, I was I'm doing uh, using Docker right now to run an integration service that I'm building for a client that is going to run in some cloud service that I'm that is yet to be determined. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but it will probably run as a Docker container. So I'm running it and testing it in, in Docker. And uh, I mean, you know, it starts up within one, maybe two seconds. I mean, it's, I got a running container with my database running within two seconds. Wow. Which is amazing, right? I yeah. mean, that's just, that's one great thing about containers. But that's what this is, you know. But it's, it's not, it's, it's a it, non-traditional database though, right? It's like a... Postgres. Yeah. That's not traditional? Oh, well, I guess that is. Postgres is pretty old, and it's a it's a good old relational database. It's not no SQL. I just, I just right? think of the start times like if Oracle and Microsoft, when you try to start those bad boys up, it's like starting like a engine. You got to turn the crank like a hundred times. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I haven't used either of those in. It's a been decade, years, so. Yeah, so it might have gotten better. But I remember way back when, you know, just just running that thing was just a big hog. Well, even just firing up Postgres on my Mac, not on containers, just because yeah, I have Postgres installed on my Mac. Um, that takes I don't know a second, maybe it's it's super fast. But yeah, so con- and in general, I mean, containers start up super fast, and they're saying that this, uh, you know, with this Microsoft Azure Cloud instances, you know, it starts up in a, it can can be running in a second or two, and you're billed by the second. So, I think the use case for that would be all these jobs that you might have that are um, quick bursts, like mm-hmm. maybe small but intense jobs or something. So imagine you know something that you know needs to takes about five minutes to run, but you know you want to throw a bunch of cores at it in a huge amount of memory, so you just and, and and if I mean, let's say they need to get done fast, like it's they're coming. Are you hearing that? Yeah. Yes, this it's that cable. Mm. So anyway, um, you may have data coming in literally like through like one of your what are these IoT? What's the IoT phase called? Like where it's you just have this data just streaming. It's that collection, right? So you, you might have this, this just massive data jobs that are streaming in, right? And you you need to fire something up and process it real fast or whatever. So you could you want to use one of these things and. You know, you get billed for the the exact five minutes and twenty eight seconds it's running. So that's not bad. Yeah, but anyway, um, I just found it. They they also announced that as a part of this, or I don't know if it's really a part of it, but they just announced at the same time that they're joining the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, which is the organization that, amongst other things, runs. I think, I think, are they? Do they do Kubernetes? I can't remember, but they also, um, you know, it's part of the Linux Foundation, which. Which Microsoft joined a while back, but yeah, the just the Cloud Native Computer Foundation alone is a like a four hundred thousand dollar a year fee if you want to be a member of it, and that's not, of course, not counting any of the money you're going to spend on having your people, you know, actually do work for that and towards towards whatever those goals are, or whatever. So, just uh, again, yeah, mm-hmm. it is a it is a vastly different Microsoft than the Microsoft yeah. of of our uh, earlier days. Anyway. I got forced to upgrade to Windows ten the other day. Accidentally, clicked yes. <laughs> so you went from from eight or seven or eight? no? It was it was uh, I got up. I don't know. I don't know if this is the newest version because I haven't been keeping up with the versions of Windows. But I had Windows ten, but then it upgraded me to something called Windows ten Creator or Creator. Yes, I heard about this, and I was like, uh, I I didn't know. I thought it was just regular updates, and I clicked OK restart, and it it took. And I was actually trying to use my 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 Windows VM at the time. I had some stuff to do that I could only do in Windows. And that basically killed me. I was done for the day because I, yeah. I clicked. I just I didn't think before I clicked OK, and it had to basically do that whole installation process. Like when I started up, it said hello and welcome, and all of a sudden, like oh crap. I mean, I, I you know I think Windows has gotten a ton better since I was a regular, or even even when I was still kind of an irregular user of Windows. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like one of the things that's just still a problem is is that whole upgrade and installation process, and it. How that's just how frequent they are and how long they take and everything. It's the length of time. I yeah. mean, I mean the Apple OS. I I don't think I've ever had. 
I mean, it, it's it's updated and it's taken a while before, but it's not like this because this one actually had multiple restarts. It would it would right. it would run yep. and then it would restart and then it would run again and then. I think I'm done. I would log in, and then it would have to apply more updates and restart. I'm like, "Well, what's going on here?" So it was, it was, a, it was a process, right? But at least I'm up to date. Uh, I have a question for you about Dev Console. So I was using it to. What was I doing? Oh, this was interesting. I had I, actually. I, I can knock out a. Well, that was your first problem. You were using Dev Console. Well, I can knock out a couple of topics in one. So I wonder if I had, <laughs> thought I had a note on this. Um, yeah. So I discovered the. The null point. What is it called in you know? So in Java, like the null pointer exception. What's it? Is that what it is in Apex too? Uh, null reference. Okay. So <laughs> I discovered the null reference exception of um, of, of process builder, <laughs> which is uh, you know you go to test something or run something, and and I get this message that you know cannot execute flow trigger. The record couldn't be saved because it failed to trigger a flow, and it gives you an a flow version ID. And and I you know I still just I mean basically like on all the all the projects that I've you know that I'm working on that I've been involved with for a while and I'm kind of like the technical architect on mm-hmm. I don't allow process builder and flow so I actually have you know I don't know how to when this happens this happened to me the other day I'm, it's kind of a new uh, different org new client <laughs> and I'm like I, don't, I literally don't even know what to do here because they don't tell you they don't give you the message and and apparently it it emails you a thing with a lot yeah. of detail and those weren't going to me and I didn't realize that but yeah. what I did do is open up the dev console. And you know how you can plug in like SQL queries into that? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a little button, there's a little checkbox you can check that says use or include tooling objects or something. And so you can query all sorts of, you know, like uh, compiled jobs and but also flows and flow versions and all that. So I I just queried like a flow or a flow definition or something. I don't remember what I was with that idea and it came right up. So that's that was my first step. I didn't even know which which flow it was. Mm. This org had like eight flows or process builders, I guess. And I was like, I don't even know which one it is. So, yeah, and it's 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 all confusing because a flow is a, is a thing and a process builder is a thing, but in the API they're all flows. I think, yeah. yeah. But no, so I was able to figure out which process builder it was, and then I could I could go and see that these process builders. I mean, in fact, I went and kind of reviewed all eight of them, and they were all just null pointer exceptions waiting to happen because yeah, because there's no there's no validation. Well, they're or they're doing like you know they're vi- totally vi- violating the law of Demeter right by like. Referencing like law of the meter, law of Demeter or Demeter. I don't know how you say. It. <laughs> Do we know this? Do you know? I this? don't know this. Okay, let me uh, let me see if I can find it. Okay, law so it's also Demeter. the it's also known as the principle of least knowledge. Um, okay, a, I've heard of that one. It's a design guideline for developing software. Yeah, in its general form, the LOD is a specific case of loose coupling. That's not a good description at all. But basically, if you have like object reference period, mm-hmm. object reference period, object reference. Well, first of all, that code that's calling those it, it knows way too much. It's it's coupled to all that right. that hierarchy of things, right? And so you probably have shitty code. Um, hey, don't call my yeah. code shitty. Uh, but it's also if any one of those is is null, uh, th- these these aren't these aren't null safe operators. I don't think does does Prosecutor have null safe operators? I mean, Apex doesn't. I don't know why. I don't think so. Uh, so, I, so to uh, who, who's in charge of this? It's Sean Wolverton, someone who runs Process Builder. I, I recommend uh, null safe operators for for these process builders, so that this is not, you know, so I don't have to spend half of my day fixing process builders. Well, is <laughs> that feels like uh, putting the training wheels on though, doesn't it? I mean, should should we be encouraging people to validate their data, or should we just kind of say, eh, we'll take care of it, don't worry? <laughs> should we be enabling people who shouldn't be? Essentially, writing code. Should we be doing th- more things? Well, that's to how you learn. To you touch code. the hot iron, and it burns you, and you're like, "Ouch! Don't do that." 
Yeah. But now we're saying you Except, can touch it. It's not going to burn for one second, and then and you have a chance to think about it and take your hand off. Yeah, it's going to scream at you, hot, 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 hot. <laughs> this goes back to my, like a this like a, I guess a, a construction metaphor. If you're building like a doghouse, fine. Like you don't have to know what you're doing. I mean, I could build a doghouse, right? Um, but I'm not going to. You don't want me to build a skyscraper for you. Well, I think that's the challenge. If we're going to get into this topic with process builders, that it, it, it the mindset is that of a programmer because you're trying to orchestrate. Logic, you're trying to trying to decide how this system will take a scenario and how it's going to handle that, and we express that in code, and that's what we do, and we we've we've learned we we've learned through trial and error of the mistakes that happen. We learn that if we don't you know initialize our variables in a very consistent way uh, or set up certain habits, that we run the risk of creating all these bugs in our code that we'll have to go back and fix and do later. Uh, like I'm a very defensive program programmer. I always check for nulls. I, I probably aggressively check for nulls in places I shouldn't. And because uh, because I'll I'll have private methods yeah, that I check control. Check for so the quick answer is you check for nulls at service boundaries. At I, I know, but I will check for nulls within private methods yeah. and everything. Just just all the way down the chain because I don't trust myself. <laughs> I, I guess I mean the problem with that is it creates you know much more verbose. Code it which, does, which, and, and which in actually, the scheme of things, ironically, can lead to to more bug prone code. Yeah, but no, I get it. Um, and also, uh, like you said, I mean, but anyways, I mean, th- these are things that we learn through trial. A lot of times through trial and error, just making these mistakes. That's that's where skill and experience comes from. Is going through and making these mistakes because the language is so uh, flexible. It's not trying to tell you how to do it. It's not saying don't do this, don't do that. It lets you do. It lets you divide one by zero. Doesn't say no. Don't do that. Yeah, the, it well, lets you do it. Well, that's that's the uh, and I have to deal with this all the time. The fallacy of you know someone has taken a trailhead and they they know they now know the syntax of the Apex language. I'm like, okay, great. You have learned a half a percent of what you need to be a good software engineer now on the Salesforce platform. Yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is is instead of like changing Process Builder to to handle that safely and basically let them just do it, is let it error, but have better messages to say, this is where you messed up. Go fix it. Yeah. It's mm. my long way of saying that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 do, I do think that, that uh, I'm glad that, the, that, that they get the email, that, well, that whoever writes the process will get an email that has a lot more detail. Um, hopefully that'll inspire people to actually read through and see what's happening because it does give you a lot of information. I've seen them. It tells it's it shows you the variable assignments and you can see the merge fields and everything that they were called. I guess I didn't even know how to decode it though. I had to get someone who knows process builders to look at this email oh. and tell me what it was. And they're like, oh yeah, well, you need it. Maybe because you know. I've done, I've created processes and I've, I've <laughs> interacted with them yeah. and I've debugged them for other people trying to go yeah. figure out what they were thinking. I pretty much refuse to deal with them. So I'm willfully ignorant, which, I'm, which I'm completely happy with. <laughs> Yeah, but it it helped in this situation. So what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so I was able to use Dev Console, but my, you know, we got to pop the stack back up. My question is, when is Dev Console going to get Lightning? I don't know if they're investing in Dev Console, are they? I, I, you know, a lot of people, a lot more people than I thought are using Dev Console, and I'm kind of saddened by that. Well, so for a lot of things, okay, here's here's my options. Um, I can use Dev Console if I've got if I happen to have an illuminated cloud project for the org I'm in, mm-hmm. I can pop over and use it. I can do. A lot of the same things mm-hmm. um, in Illuminate Cloud, or you can use this. What's this other thing? Workbench. I've never. I actually. <laughs> workbench, I, I, I hear about bad. that so much, but there's a couple of times I've been. Because I, I, I forget every time that I've gone. I was like, oh, I'm going to check this workbench. I go to it and I just see the login page, and I'm like, nope, that's a big nope. <laughs> it, it's it's very it's it's no frills. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like 
you know, when I was when I first started out, there were people who would write programs, especially VB programs, because then you had the visual designer for the forms and you could drag and drop stuff. And me, even back then, I was a bit more visually conscious about how things were laid out and the spacing and, and all that kind of stuff. But there were people who would just throw crap on the screen and they were fine. It functions. And I've seen so many programs in that era of people who could write code and were much smarter than me, but they would have crappy interfaces. They were the ugliest things ever. There was no, there was like things weren't spaced or yeah. lined up. There was just like boxes yeah. everywhere. I mean, and they're like, yeah, eh, it works. Which is not to what say, like, to be honest, like, which is not to say they're not smart, right? Right. I mean, you probably don't want, uh, you know, Uncle Bob Martin or uh, Bjorn Strustrup designing your UIs. They're incredibly brilliant people, but, you know. You don't know that. <laughs> Everyone has, their, I'm saying probably because I actually they, don't know. Maybe they are UI experts, <laughs> but they're probably not. Anyway. Uh, I, I guess this is kind of related because, you know, dev console and logs and whatever, but I was also um, doing, uh, this is a different integration, and it was in basically API to API, which is great, and the mm -hmm. system I was integrating with is actually really nice, really good API, really good documentation, nice little, nice tooling for it and everything. And I built a REST API in Salesforce using the Apex REST feature, right? Or cool. whatever, and... Um, this other service is is, is hitting this, um, but it's it's saying it's the other service saying, "Hey, we just hit that, but we got a 500." Mm -hmm. I thought, "Oh, okay. Well, let me just uh, turn on log." So I, and and this is not authenticating. Well, hmm. it yeah, has to authenticate. No, it's not. It's using the pub. It's coming in unauthenticated, so it uses the so these. Okay, back up. When you if you want to expose a REST service, you have to put it in a site. You have to create a site, right? You know what I'm talking about? Under develop site, you have to create a site. Mm -hmm. Because that's how you pick a domain name and you can put it at a certain slash URL or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's where you're... So they're in the... What are they available at? It's, it's at... Um, so it's whatever, your, whatever domain name you pick, subdomain, slash, and then if you gave it a sub... A, what's it called? A, 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 what are those called? A virtual domain? Uh, not a virtual... Uh, just whatever, the, whatever comes up to the first slash, like a top-level directory thing. Okay. If, if you gave it that, and then, and then it's like service... Back, or slash services slash Apex REST slash, and then your, basically your class names, right? Mm -hmm. No, I'm sorry, not your class names, whatever whatever path you mapped your, your Apex REST classes to. Okay. I know this is confusing. I've never used it that way, by the way. Okay. I've always forced authentication and then and then called the, the API directly. I've never made it available as a public API. Well, it, it actually is available as a public API, unless you disable the, unless on your site, you disable the public user. And anyway, I'm, this is using, we're, I'm using basic auth for, for authentication, which sells, which actually Apex REST doesn't support, um, but I'm but I'm rolling my own. So like I look at the auth headers and just make sure they're right and all that stuff. And there's also signing, so it actually signs mm -hmm. uh, the entire payload with uh, with a secret key, and so I, I verify I validate that too. Um, but I thought, well, okay, I need to. Uh, it's, t it's telling me it's getting a 500. The other service is calling in a Salesforce telling me it's getting a 500. So I will. Uh, enable debug logs, and I'll see what the hell is happening here, right? Mm -hmm. So I got to turn on logs for that site user. I get no logs, and then I thought, well, I'll I'll turn on logs for the for the specific Apex class because you can do that. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I tried that, didn't work. And it turns out there's this new thing. It started in Winter 17, uh, and I hope that this helps someone. But if you want to get debug logs for the public site user, then it has to send its requests with a certain cookie. Oh, that's right. I remember this. And so, if you're some, if you're in someone's browser, that's easy. You just like you just um, you set the cookie. Yeah, right. Not a big deal. 
Now, what they what they want to avoid is like if you have a high volume site, right? That is not authenticated, yeah, just spamming the the debug logs. Exactly. Yeah, and I and I get that kind of again. Yeah. L- uh, limit. Don't I think scare. I read like a Salesforce blog article <clears throat> or something to that effect when that came out. I mean, I, I've never had to use it, but I remember reading about it or seeing some thread about it, and that was some of the f- like they were saying, "Why do we have to do this?" Because they were having all these issues, and yep. Salesforce basically said, "Yeah, because the, the debug logs were just getting spammed with with stuff." But almost all the you know web API machinery out there doesn't support cookies because web APIs are generally stateless. They're designed to be you know mm-hmm. it's an architectural. Uh, principle or pattern, whatever it is, you know, stateless, stateless services. And so they don't even have support for cookies. Um, luckily, I was able to find a way to just add a header mm-hmm. um, with, a, with, a, with a cookie header with, with a value. And so I was able to actually then get, get logs for these, um, the calls these things were making. But anyway, that's a, uh, little, a, a little pro tip there <laughs> for, for getting debug logs from your private site or your site public guest user. <laughs> Put that in the back pocket. Yeah, I know. I'm sure that was going to be useful for everyone listening. No, I mean, it, it'll stick in someone's head and yeah, it'll be, they'll I, be I like, so. why can't I get that? They're if, like, and we'll see it in Slack. <laughs> what was the episode where Jeremy talked about? <laughs> yeah. Hey, if so, if that helped one person, then this segment was worth it. <laughs> um, I, have, I have some other random stuff. I don't, you wanna, do you have more stuff? I feel like I'm kind of dominating here. Um, well, I mean, it, it all depends on what you want to get into. I, I, I kind of wanted to go over the developer surveys that were out recently. I kind of, I kind of like those. I feel like those are informative. And then I have uh, one other topic. All right. So, we'll f- right, but just quickly before we dig into those, then let um, do we? Hmm. I don't know if we want to. Yeah. I don't think we want to pre-announce anything. You know, uh, about, about potential too. upcoming guests. I don't. I think we won't pre-announce anything. All right. So that that just be a little vague teaser. You so, have been teased. Yeah, I'm a, this is what professional broadcasters do. They, they tease. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do it. So what, which... But for I, pros get paid. Yeah. We're amateur. I know. We got to get that uh, Patreon thing set up. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I don't know if we talked about this, but I did think about, I'm like, okay, how do, what are ways that we could, you know, uh, get, you know, get a couple bucks flowing into this operation here? And I thought, one thing I thought, because um, I've seen some other people do this, is, and I feel like the conflict of interest is, seems low. Um, is is they'll do um, ad reads for jobs. So, hey, your company wants to announce their job availability to the Good Day Sir Army. Hmm. Send us a few bucks and we'll read your job ad. But then I thought, hmm, what happens when, I don't know, Salesforce or, not, not that they want <laughs> advertise with us, um, but um, I don't know, consulting companies or any of these because that's who it would be, or these these you know ISVs or or companies that are in the ecosystem. Then we, then that's a, then you're back to the well. Now now they're they've marked themselves, and we can't really talk about. them. I think you just need to lower your standards and let's let's no let's, I'm, no let's I, just like be like I know I've decided be use salesman guys no. that will do anything for a buck. The only way that that the only way that we could make any of this work is is if we are community supported. Because what if not? Then what we're doing is we're selling our audience, we're selling the army as a product to advertisers, and it just. Yeah. I don't like that because we are we are selling our our authenticity and our relationship with our community, and I don't like that. Maybe I'm a purist. I don't care what you think of me, <laughs> but that's how I feel. Is that we'd be we'd be letting them tap into that, and yeah, they'd be paying for it. But I still don't like the idea. The only way that we would that I would feel comfortable, you know, raising any kind of money would be like a, a direct direct community supported. So anyone who wants to send us a buck, buy us a beer, you know, they could. They could do that, you know. And the thing you see the most often is Patreon. I don't mm-hmm. know why. 
I guess they've had a good success at these kind of community funded yeah. podcasts and groups and communities or whatever. Not that we'll do that, but I don't know. A lot of people have asked us for a way to, you know, send us a couple bucks. The cool thing about Patreon, though, is if if you are a, you know, like a longtime uh, listener of the podcast and you just want to, like, send us five bucks every month, they make it easy to do that. They do. But but pe- the, the, the things that I've seen with Patreon is that a lot of people try to provide some added benefits. I think like you're that. supposed to, right? So, the, yeah, yeah, you have levels, right? It's kind of like a, what are the, but I'm like, um, like well, a what can right? we do as an added benefit? Like, what would we, like, like, you get the episode earlier? I don't, that's weird. No, <laughs> it'd have to be like. You get to, like, have a call with us every week that's weird well we could do like we could do like you know shirts and that'd be a way to get a shirt um john's used whiskey corks i, I lick each and every one <laughs> yeah <of them>. exactly <laughs> personally the bottle's empty and i'm like there, there's whiskey in that cork and i suck on it yeah oh. <laughs> that's a that's a visual i'd like not a need. Uh, what, what do they call those uh, uh pacifier yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's my little pacifier oh. man okay uh, this is your thing, or took a very surveys? dark turn. I did not intend. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Where no, you got to, I don't know about the survey. So, oh, uh, you don't know? Any, okay, so uh, not really. So, two surveys came out recently. One of them was, uh, um, I, I keep want to say IntelliJ, but it's JetBrains. They did a survey, um, and they they of course focused on all the languages available. Uh, I didn't see Apex on here. I'm hoping maybe Illuminate Cloud will get enough popularity that it'll it'll force Apex into this survey. <laughs> But it wasn't. Uh, JavaScript is still king. JavaScript is still king in that survey. It's ruling the world. HTML, JavaScript, uh, yep. uh, and then Java right after that. And then, of course, you have you know C Sharp and C++ trailing that. But yeah, definitely top three still continue to be JavaScript, HTML, and Java in, in those worlds. Um, I thought some of it was interesting in terms of like issue tracking and things. But I think these, that's because these are developer-centric surveys. When it comes to like issue tracking or code cover or code review, those type of tools, I think that's more higher end management. Like I don't think developers really care about that stuff. It's more management that cares about this stuff. So yeah. I think whenever you talk to a developer and say, "Do you use a code review tool or do you use like an issue tracker?" They're like, oh, no, "I don't care about that stuff." No, but I think they would answer if when they answer if they did use that at their work. That's what I thought, but yeah. I, but I'm like, uh, I, would they? I mean, do they care about that? Do they use it? They don't really use it. They just enter their code and someone else. Does the code mm, review, no, right? no, because on, I mean, well, in that case, let, let, let's explore that. Then, <laughs> then that would mean that not too many people do issue tracking, and not too many people do code reviews. I think that's those are probably fair statements. Not too many people want a package manager for their uh, language either. Apparently, no, not don't. on the Salesforce platform anyway. Not Salesforce developers. I don't. Happy soup. We don't. We don't need them. Uh, new, them fancy tools. We, Jeremy, we got enough problems. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> We don't need more. You want to keep adding to the problems. Yeah. Um, uh, so, anyways, that that was that. I mean, it, it's it's not too far off from like say the Stack Overflow thing. You would get you get a lot of the kind of same metrics. You know, you know who's using what and how much are they using it and all that kind of stuff. I'm, and I'm not really sure what the intent with some of these are, but the one I thought was really interesting was the Ionic one because uh, that one kind of asked a lot of questions about like what kind of tools are you using with this, what the libraries are you using with this. Um, so I thought that one was was pretty cool. Um, I did I did briefly look at that one today. I think I saw the link flow through the Slack or something. Yeah, and I clicked on it and they they I saw they it was just, this is a kind of on their high level introduction to it. But they they said they there was some really interesting discovery, which was that like most of the developers aren't 
I either like aren't, what was it? They're not testing or they're not something. I can't remember. Yeah, they're not testing. They're not testing. <laughs> they're not testing. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that was really interesting. I mean, the, just they're not testing. Um, also interesting was the favorite text editor was uh, Visual Studio Code. Now, that's the kind of Atom IO, or is it Atom or, um, yeah, I think it's Atom. Okay. Uh, it's, so anyways, it's as cross-platform kind of mm. tool that, that you can use that. You so think, it's visuals. Talking about Electron or Electron? There oh. you go. Yeah. Um. So I mean, yeah, the Visual Studio Code was top. Sublime was next. Um. I forgot what was after the Atom was next. So they're all basically the same product. Uh, yeah. I, well, I don't know if Sublime switched to that, but anyways, that was that was really popular. Uh, Mac won out by a small percentage in terms of what people are using for Ionic. Uh, well, what they're building on, what they're developing on. Okay. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It was like the number was 57.9% for Mac and 55.4% um, for Windows, which kind of correlates pretty well with the types of text editors they're using because those three, uh, Visual Studio Code, Sublime, and Atom are all cross-platform. WebStorm is also cross-platform, and it was in that list as well. Um, things like you know Visual Studio ID were on there, but not not a player. Do they break down the PCs into Windows and Linux or was it just like did they, they just say Mac and They Windows? did. So Linux was 28%. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. And there's another. I don't know what's the other. Is there some operating system I'm unaware of? I don't know, BSD maybe? I'm not I don't, I don't know. There's something I'm not thinking of. I have no yeah. idea. I, I'm only aware of three operating systems in my world. That's it. Yeah. You're a 3 OS kind of guy. <laughs> I am. Unless, well, uh, may, maybe iOS. That's that's a different operating system. So maybe people are developing on their iPads. That's possible, right? That's a thing, isn't it? Uh, yeah. You know, speaking of that, just a random tangent here, there was a lot of, I would say, within the range of a year to three years ago, a lot of um, hype and experimentation around uh, the idea that you can basically, you know, a lot of developers would be able to switch to iOS for a lot of their development, like particularly web developers, right? Yeah. So, you know, you hook, you get a decent-sized iPad, and you can even use external screen. You can have a keyboard and mouse. Mm -hmm. And you've got this great, super portable development environment. And I think so much of that has died away. I mean, I've heard so many more developers now, that the guys that used to to be talking about that now or saying, yeah, that just did not work out. I'm just, I'm just not near as productive on an iPad as I am on a computer. Yeah. And I've always felt that way. I've never for a second thought that I could get much work done on an iPad. Well, I think some of the new, the new features for iOS might. Like the file system thing? That might yeah. help. Um, I, I think a lot of things that draw, that, that uh, kills it is probably like there's no command line interface. So there's no, there's no way to run all these like node tools and all that kind of stuff that people typically are using these days with web development. Yeah, you can you can do you can SSH into other machines just yeah. not and it's not your own. And that's just not productive. <laughs> now, one thing I do like about my iPad Pro and I think this is a recent addition is I can now like swipe and I can have a smaller window or even take up half the screen and I can actually have two apps running. Yep. And so that that is that's big. That is pretty big. Oh, and it's like awesome. this multi uh, this drag new drag and drop stuff. Yeah, except I, mean, I use it to 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 browse you or I use it to watch YouTube while I browse Chive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> For some reason I'm just not getting much work done. I don't understand. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um oh so this was a big thing on the on the Ionic survey popping the stack here. Uh, and this is encouraging to me personally <laughs> is that 40% in this survey were self-employed, meaning they were building stuff as contractors. It's, it's the what do they call it the gig economy? Yeah. 
I mean, the, and 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 who they were building apps for? It wasn't like there's all these people building apps for themselves. No, it was uh, the largest percentage, forty one percent, was building apps for a client. So they they basically have contracts with people who are asking them to build apps, and these are self employed, me myself and I people, not yeah. not so much like you know small shops or anything. So that that's really encouraging, at least for the the type of work that I do because I'm I'm in that that realm. Um, Android is still the biggest target for these mobile applications, for these hybrid applications, I guess just to say. Uh, 94%, that's big. 83% for uh, iOS. Um, so obviously those two those two are being targeted. Um, and, and the reason the numbers are so close is because they're developing for both. It's not like I'm developing for one or over the other, and so the percentages should add up, but it's it's not. It's just they're developing for both. Yep. Um, so anyways, I, I thought that was pretty interesting because I, I like seeing some of the stuff that, that people are doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it, um, especially when it comes to hybrid. Because I remember so long ago, I just did not think this whole hybrid thing would work out. And it's turning out to be such a big thing, a thing that I'm, I'm starting to buy into. I mean, I was always native. OS is the best way to get the best performance, the best productivity. Well, that's can, still can, true. The question is some things, or at least my defense of that has always been, well, some things... Well, I don't mean, don't need native performance in order to still feel and look good. Well, yeah, and 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 even to that, I I would say that I I would even include the IDEs. I was like like I would I would use IDEs as an example. You'd never be able to code in those type of things, but you are. You can. I mean, Electron is basically that. Well, okay, <clears throat> and I, I the terminology on these things is confusing to me. But you have the the type of I guess hybrid app where it's basically a web. Application running in a in an in an embedded browser, right. right? The the whole Cordova thing. But then there's these things where, like uh, React Native and some of these other things. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a couple others, maybe more than that. I can't think of the names of them. Um, the the Telerik guys have one, I think. But it's your JavaScript is actually kind of compiled, like at runtime or something, into well, oh, Native Script. Have you heard of this Native Script? It's it's similar. It's along the same lines. So it's actually using native it's it's taking your web app and kind of compiling it into native code and native like ui things um well i i and, I and so so compiling it what i thought is that there was an api that it would call and it would say give me a, a button and that api would either call the native os system api or it would just generate a button for you yeah and i think that's how they're doing it is they're, they're but they it, have these hooks in the actual what is it, the toolkit, SDK or whatever, they have some hooks in there to the native OS that you targeted, and it would go in and call that API for that and pull whatever the native instance of that is. And I think there's there's the whole a whole grayscale of these different, how how native some of these things are. Mm-hmm. But but I think it suffices to say that um, a lot of these things are way more, even though they're, they're not a full native app, it's not like, you know, you wrote it in, um, in Xcode with Swift and everything. Right. Um, but it's much more native than an embedded uh, an embedded browser, yeah. like a Cordova type thing. So I don't know. It's definitely a. There's a lot of options. Yeah, in, in I mean, there, there's now. some challenges to building really big, complex things with JavaScript. I mean, which is pretty much what we're talking about. I mean, we're talking about building real applications with JavaScript, which yeah. is crazy if you think about it. If you, if you ask someone that question ten years ago. I and I have said you're crazy. It's not going to happen. It's just it's not going to work. I remember when Node came out. And I, I know I've said this before. I know I remember when Node came out. I was like, this is 
This is crazy. It's a great idea. It's a great concept. It's just not going to take off. And here it is. Here it took off. Anyone, anyone who's considering developing real apps on JavaScript, go go watch Gary Bernhardt's talk. The, the, I think it was the original what talk. What what? You, you know this talk? We'll put it in the show notes. It's a. I think that's. I think it was what it was. It was a. It was a. Uh, I guess this is 2012. Oh, it was a lightning talk by Gary Bernhardt at CodeMash 2012. And I think that's which I think that's one of those. I don't know. I'll put it in the show notes if that's not the right one. Um, but he just destroys JavaScript <laughs> and shows <laughs> and shows what a really horrible, horrible language it is. And there's th- you know so and, and a lot of the things that he shows in that that he's basically making fun of JavaScript. There are ways to mitigate these things. So like everything from strict mode to um, linting and whatever to make sure that you don't trip over the extremely dangerous and deadly parts of JavaScript and kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you, you know, it's like you have to know all these things, and it's just, it's, it, just, it just seems like we should fundamentally be using a better language that doesn't require those things. Yeah, I always feel like I'm... I, I, I never feel like I'm doing my best work with JavaScript. I, 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 I'm happy when I get it to do what I want it to do, and I'm happy that I wrote it in a way that later on I can read it, because that's really easy to do. It's really easy to write code that works one day. You come back to it a week later, and you're like, what the hell? Because I never know if I have an object in this variable or if I have a function in this variable, if I have a string in this variable, and it gets kind of crazy. And it's, it, it's, it's tough. Yeah. Um, I try to organize my classes, or not my classes, my files a certain way so that it, it kind of represents an object because that's just the way my brain thinks. Um, you know, I... But when I try, I, I can't apply my object-oriented stuff to it because it just doesn't make sense in that world. You can, and you can you can make it and fit it and shoehorn it in, but it's not really the long the language's strong suit. And when you try to do that, I think you end up making it worse. So I've tried to try to stick with more Java prototype concepts and realize that everything's a function basically, and try to uh, try to just think of it in that term. But it gets kind of crazy when you ha- when I have anonymous functions and functions that call functions, and but that function is actually returning an object, but it's technically a function too. A oh, well, function <laughs> is an object. It's right. also a, it's also a callable. <laughs> but, it, but, it, right? but in representation, like yeah. virtually, you're supposed to think of it as an object. And that function has properties. It, right. it, it is well, and that's. I mean, and like, do I use do I use parentheses here? I remember. I don't remember if I made that a function or if that just returned a variable or some kind of data or whatever. And so it it. it starts to get crazy. The the tragic part about it is is that there are some extremely cool aspects to JavaScript. I mean some of its again some of its functional aspects are yeah. actually really powerful and very I, nice. I, I, lo- I love the the ability to kind of return a function or override a function and, and you call can, back to another function and especially with I will say with uh, like ES6 and and even things like TypeScript. I mean you can yeah. write some really elegant code. Yeah. I mean, I love that I oh, can... Oh, and to, on top of that, if you're using Promises, or better yet, um, Reactive, RxJS. Yeah, so I mean, that's, that's the other you thing. You can write whole... some really nice code, yeah. very powerful code that solves really hard problems that just reads like a freaking well-written novel. It's like it reads so well. It's so... Yeah. You can just easily see what it does. It's like easy to reason about, and, and you can feel comfortable modifying. Now, are you just trolling us, or have you really refilled your whiskey glass this many times? That had to be like number twelve. 
<laughs> I just pour like a very little bit. Is this a nervous habit? It is. It is. Yeah. So you got a nervous habit over there pouring like a half a milliliter no, of whiskey I, every time. I just pour a little bit so that I'm only doing a little. Because if I pour a, a does, bigger does thing, I make you drink less. <laughs> I take bigger sips. But if I pour a little bit, if I take a bigger sip, it's empty. I'm, I'm regulating. Yeah. You you might be an alcoholic if. <laughs> we haven't had a drunk drunk job. <laughs> drunk, drunk Easy for John you to say, John. In a while. Yeah. I was trolling. Yeah. No, but sure I, I think I've been trying to trying to trying to do more native stuff with JavaScript, and, and it, you know, pro- callback hell is a thing, and it's it's not something you can get around. You have to use some kind of like promise library because yeah. it, it just it's it's tough. Yeah. Have you done promises in Apex yet? No. Yeah. I'm I'm actually gonna. I think uh, who was it that created a nice promises library? I remember you mentioning it before. And I was, I, I ran it, I, God, I feel bad now, I forget who that was, but I think... And I, I can see the I, th- I can I, see the use for it in, say, like, cubables. Yes, that was one of the use, and I was, because that was my confusion early on was, okay, you know, promises, I mean, I certainly like what they do to the programming model in JavaScript, um, but I don't, since since Apex is not an invented, or, or generally not speaking, not an asynchronous language... Um, right. What? Why? Why? <laughs> and but you know, the, the, I don't know. This person explained to me like some of the use cases, and I think Cubals is one of them. And well, well, I tell you what, are, Cubals are nice. I mean, they're, they're asynchronous they nice? and they're chainable, and that that's what makes promises for for Cubals, Apex Cubals, and a they, thing. And they have a uh, they have increased limits. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I've been using the hell out of it. You get a job ID. You can. Yeah. Watch exactly. It. <laughs> you actually get a job ID. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I like them. I love them. And you can you can pass real data. Now there is some danger. You do have to be careful about the data you're passing because that data that data could be stale. But if if you there are times where I'm processing something and I I can set I can set the object graph. I can say these are things my my job needs to know to run, and I can pass that on. And say go do your thing. Um, now if someone's just trying to pass records they got from a trigger and pass that on. That's probably a bad idea because things can get stale when you do that. But if you're trying to set up an operation. You know, say it's something that's doing something more complex or has to touch a lot of different objects. Um, you know, if you fill it with just the IDs or just just the base minimum of what it needs to know, so that it can go out and get that information and process it, that's the ideal scenario. But if you're trying to just grab everything you got from the trigger and pass it on to a cubable, there's some danger that data is going to be stale. And if you save that data, you could be overriding data. So I mean, there's some danger there. But if you if you use it the right way, it's it's really good. I really I really like it. I I. I I can't remember the last time I did a future call because I always default to cubables. It's just such a better technology. I don't know if I'm I'm at defaulting to cubables yet because they are, you know, it's not a what's the, what's the someone's trying to come up with that. What's the what do you call an eight like the po, the apex version of a pojo? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, you you know a, a cubable is not a plain old apex object. You have to implement interfaces and all mm-hmm. kind of, whereas you know future can just be it's just a static method on something. Um yeah, and at least with future, you can annotate, uh, allow callouts. <laughs> this one, you have to implement some weird. You have to implement implement a allow callouts interface to allow it to do callouts, which is weird. Uh, yeah, I guess so. That's, so that's called a marker interface. An interface that doesn't have any methods. It's just provides yeah. some runtime inspection to make sure that, or to to know whether something allows, you know, whatever has some certain property, or in this case, allows callouts. Um, the big inter- the the I think the use case that Cubals and, I, and there's a I think there's a lot of use cases that it can clean up a lot of code. But the big one is, let's say you and you're um, you're interacting with, you know, let's say you've got a trigger that when it fires, you need to call some external API, mm-hmm. right? And then based on its res- well, first of all, you can't do that in a trigger, right? You can't do any calls in a trigger, right? Right. Okay. 
I didn't know if that had changed or not. Um, so, okay, yeah, use a cubicle for that, right? You, you default to cubicles now, so that, that's going to be your go-to. So you you do a, um, a cubicle, uh, and you, you, know, you call this API, mm-hmm. and let's say that when that comes back, you need to write the results to the database, which, which you can do as long as you didn't do any DML before the callout, right? right? You can do DML before or after. But let's say, that, let's say that once you get that result back, so you need to write that to the database, but then you also need to take like the ID that was resulted from that and do another call back into that mm-hmm. API. Or maybe it's an even different API, you know? And so you kind of need to chain the series of make an API, API call right to the Salesforce database. Make an API call right to the Salesforce database. Yeah. Well, because of the the rule of, you know, you that you they don't want you doing that because you, your transactions would stay open way too long and you'd, you know, you'd just have users, you'd, your system would come down as its knees because you'd have uh, too much uh, yeah. uh, contention, right? Um, so you can use Cubeball just to like queue these things up, you know, a whole series of things. Right. And and I've I've been using them to solve the problem of it, it within a trigger trigger transaction. You can get, I think it's two hundred. I think it matches what the API limit is for a insert update CRUD operation. So the max you can get, I think, in a trigger is two hundred. That that could change, so don't rely on it. But I've had instances. I think where you can insert more than that, right? It's just that um, a trigger will never send you more than two hundred records at a time. But you can insert. I think no. I think the limits are you can query two thousand records, but you can only insert, update, delete up to two hundred records at a time in a batch. I believe two hundred or two hundred fifty, something like that. It's been a while, but I I just know that I have this constraint that I have to work within. And and I've had requirements where when when something happens on a record, I need to either push or pull data to an external um, API, like you're mentioning. However, the number of records to process is much smaller than the number of callouts you can do in a single transaction, which I think is at 25. Maybe it's gotten yeah. up and mm-hmm. got upped. So if you have a record set of 200 and that API only supports a single record call per per call, yeah. you're screwed. Yeah, which is exactly the situation I had. Yeah. I had and so, and yeah, so Cubals makes that easier because what I do is I basically say, here's 200 records, and I have it chip away at that 200 record set because yep. I have it reinstantiate itself. I basically <laughs> recursively call my Cubal yeah. class yeah. And tell it to chip away at this data right. until you're done. And and you have a what's it called a um you have a, a halting condition, yeah. whereas which is basically when you have no more data. Right. Um, yeah. So the total number of records that you can process as a result of DML statements in one, um, in one transaction is ten thousand. You can do it. You can insert ten thousand records at a time in a transaction. No, that's in Apex. Yes, but I'm I mean like when someone does when either. When someone does a point-and-click interface and someone tr- causes a trigger to happen, mm-hmm. oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you can. Yeah, so the system should only send like a 200. Well, it's funny. Time. Yeah. Let's say let's say in Apex you insert 10,000 yeah, records. Exactly. That, that's going to generate. That's going to result in triggers. That's going to result. That will in, break that up into batches right. of 200. So, like, say your your triggers will never get called with more than 200 records. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I see where that's going. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, like cubes. <laughs> yeah, no, they're actually um, and 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 more importantly than making things easy, they make certain things possible mm-hmm. that were not possible before. Yeah, I've I've had just large data sets that I just had no way of being able to process without a cubel yeah. because I can, I can not only the limits higher, but I can kind of I can use my trigger or whatever transaction that initiated the request. I can use that to kind of set things up and try to figure out what I'm dealing with, and then I can hand processing off to whatever through my job basically and I can let that run now you can do that with batches but batches have a very specific case because they require you to query some data and do that it's not like I can say here's this large data set or this thing I need you to process 
and, 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 and just process it. Like I, I can't send a job data to process. I can tell it what data to query to process, but I can't tell it here's some data to process. Yeah, I've had that's that. the big difference. Mm. That's why batchables or batch. That's why batch didn't work for me in the past. I've had so I've had use cases, and I can't remember them in detail now. But I know it was basically this. The scenario was, I need this batch to run a thousand times. But it's it's not looping over records. It's not right. It's not, exactly. It's yeah. not like a. Uh, it's not like I have a thousand records to process. It's no. I have this thing, this widget, <laughs> yep. and I, I need you to take the information from this widget and process. Do do some processing. That processing is big. Yeah, it's heavy. So I've done. Th- I mean, you see these solutions where someone will create just a custom object just for this. They'll insert a thousand records into yeah. it. And then, and then they'll have the, they'll do a batch over that. And I like, hate that because it's yeah, so I dirty. And yeah. I normally wouldn't hate that. Normally in any other database system, I wouldn't hate that. I'd be like, eh, okay. I, I, I staged some data. And, 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 and I would even say that's a bonus because now I can see exactly, I can even, I can even write back to that record and show some status. It, it becomes a, a, a valuable object to me because mm, now I can okay. see what's going on. But in the, in the Salesforce I think, world. I, I think it's stretching to find a silver lining, but Okay. <laughs> No, I, I'm a, I'm saying in any other database, but in okay. Salesforce world, that has a cost associated to it. Now, now the operation of inserting not only takes up time in terms of execute execution, but also it starts impacting limits. So you have to make sure you have a good, really good cleanup process. And are you really sure your cleanup process is working? No. Exactly. So I'm going to write another scheduled job that'll just go through and delete everything I can, which is in point. completely separate transactions, which will succeed or fail independently. So you can you can get actually out of you can get invalid states of things. Yeah, and there's there's actually a limit I found out. Believe it or not, there's a limit to how much you can delete <laughs> in a transaction. It's probably 10,000. I think so cuz yeah. I I think I had I had some job that would go through and try to clean things up, but it, the stuff that it had to clean up was a lot of records. Yep. And it just couldn't delete them all. So it it was basically rolling over every night trying to delete and it never finished cuz it kept having to roll over the records from the night before. Yeah. Um and so at the time, I didn't have a good solution for that. Oh, um, what are, how are we doing on time, John? We are at an, almost an hour and a half here. Almost. Well, I have one more topic. It could be quick. I've got so I've got um I got something I think I'm I got two things I'm going to hold. One of them's something I've oh yeah I've got three things I'm going to hold. They're all good. And one of them is something I'm I'm just going to beat you up with. So I'm I'm looking forward to that. That's another tease, by the way. Trying to get our numbers up, John. Got to got to do some good teases here. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going to bring listeners to the show is you beating up on Oh, yeah. that's People always enjoy good beating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to give them drunk, John, but I'm not drunk enough yet. <laughs> All right. So what do you... Uh, we have some new competition. Not really. We've always had the same competition. Oh, yeah. that's I saw the note from, from a listener. Um, a new Salesforce podcast. Yeah, that said, uh, hey, you got some competition. I was like, I was like oh, that's interesting. Um because there's there's a couple of Salesforce podcasts I really enjoy. Uh, I like the uh, this one. I, I I will say I will say right off the bat, this is actually a pretty good podcast. Um, is it, this is run by Salesforce, right? This is run by it's it's Blazing Trails, I guess. And it's guess it's not it's, it's not um, Mike Mike and uh, Jillian. It's someone else. Well, here here's the format. I mean, it, it's run by Marissa Cranies. I think she pronounces Cranies. I, I, I would have said Cranes if I had read it, but I think she pronounces like Cranies. Okay. Um, and I guess she's the official host. Uh, it has like a very like the first the very first episode is kind of introducing it and it sounds very corporate and it turned me off instantly because it was you could tell someone was reading 
everything that was being said, or Marissa was reading everything that was said. It sounded very corporate, did they very do a, sterile. Uh, did they do a, uh, what, do, what do they call their, um, uh, did they do Safe Harbor? <laughs> Probably. I didn't get that far. I was like, oh, this sucks. This is, this is not a good podcast. And then the second episode um, also didn't endear me. It was, it was another one of their equality pushes. So you're saying skip the first two episodes and skip the first okay. two episodes. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, that stuff is not stuff I'm interested in. So, and I think that's the danger of this type of podcast because it doesn't really have a certain theme or format. It's, it's a, just it's like going to be a mixed bag, right? Just yeah. Like, it's going to be a mixed bag. So there are going to be some episodes that really are really great. And, and I, it's really a interview show. So well, the, the whole show people, is, is premised around uh, doing interviews, bringing people on from the community or from Salesforce okay. and to, to talk about certain topics. Well, and we should be clear, like some people may be really interested in the equality episode and they can't get enough of that stuff, right? And oh, so, right, right, yeah. And, so, and for me, it was just like, I, I'm done with this topic. Right. <laughs> so right. so for me, it wasn't that, it wasn't something to resonate, but I, I, can, I, I continued on and they have this whole Dreamforce push and there is certain aspects of it that are like, all right, we're going to Dreamforce. Yes, we know this is all a big thing and all that. But but it started to get really informative in certain aspects, especially when they started talking about um, uh, topic submissions. You know how 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 that process works and and the things you need to do to to try to get noticed in that oh, process. So it's they um, get thousands of submissions. They don't hmm. want just a title and an abstract. They want they really want you to sell their topic and say this is really valuable. This was very valuable for me, and this is how I think it'd be valuable for everyone. So there there was there were times in this where I was like, oh, that's really good information. That's 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 really good. I like that. And it was it was well done and the interview was handled really well. Um you look like you want to interject before I get <laughs> you're really no, looking at me. I was gonna ask so is this kind of like a type of thing where they give you kind of peeks inside to how Salesforce works and things like that? Or? I think so. Okay. I, so look, Mike and Jillian, they they hosted one of the episodes or they were on one of the episodes and you know, I really like Mike and Jill. They they, they seem to have really good chemistry when they're on the podcast. Jillian, by the way. Jillian. Yeah. I, no, that's I right. Too. I like them. That's right. I, I keep saying Jillian. They're nice folks. She's, she's she prefers Jillian, doesn't she? Yeah, because we we um, I, I don't. I, actually, I saw Mike at Trailhead DX. I don't think he knew who I was. I think he was like, "Huh, who are you?" But uh, but when we interacted with them, and um, was it a couple years ago when we yeah. when they had the podcast thing at Dreamforce podcast you know, booth, they were they were both very very pleasant, nice, and helped yeah. us out. And I I forgot that she said she prefers Jillian, not Jill. And she's married, so her uh, she's got a new last name. Oh, does she? Yeah, oh, cool. I don't remember what it is, but well, congratulations. Yep. So, anyways, I mean, they they were on an episode. It was pretty good. Um. Really good chemistry, uh, lively conversation. So that that was kind of nice. Uh, I thought I, there was an AI episode, <laughs> and uh, I had a few thoughts about the AI episode. And See, it was, this is something that could have been, and I, maybe it was, but sure, certainly can be good because Salesforce has got a lot of smart AI uh, engineers and computer scientists. So well, they do, but but it the episode, and I think this is, I think this is what's good about podcasts. I think this is what's good about you know, hearing people's ideas or hearing their thoughts or even just hearing this pitch, which I felt it was, I didn't, it wasn't meant to be a pitch, but I could tell it was, it was a struggle to sell AI. And it, 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 uh, triggered something in me. It triggered a thought in me of AI in general, of, of the challenge of selling AI. And, and I wrote this down I wrote in my notes and I said, I don't think anyone can sell you AI. I think AI is one of those kind of tools that you discover that you need, mm. that you say, here is, mm. I need to be able to do this, and I I think the AI could help me do this. Mm. Why do you say, uh? <laughs> oh, because I think Salesforce will absolutely be able to sell AI. Well, whether they will or will not be able to sell it, I don't, I think the numbers will re reflect the wrong thing. I mean, you know how the data, the, the data will lie. 
they'll they'll sell a lot of AI licenses, and it, it'll be a lie. They'll think, oh, we're really good at selling AI. Uh, and I don't think that's the case because every time they tried to talk about AI in its value proposition, it was in these really vague generalities. Uh, the, the, that coke, was like, the Coke machine. <laughs> exactly. It's the Coke machine type scenarios. Maybe they, they should have tried to, to identifying hot dogs. Well, <laughs> well, that's the thing. Do you, know, I, do, you, do you get that reference? No. Okay. So you need to catch up on Silicon Valley. But I don't the, watch the TV Silicon show. Valley. Well, get, you need to fix that. See? That's another one. Game of Thrones. Stranger Things, Breaking Bad, Silicon Valley are are all the things people throw in my face. Yeah, like, you gotta have, watch this. It's just yeah, you 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 know you're if you want to be in the milieu, John, you have to watch these things. The milieu. <clears throat> yep. <laughs> I watch comic book movies. What? <laughs> okay, the whiskey's kicking in. Yeah. <laughs> Not even sure what I heard. I hope it wasn't what I thought I heard, but <laughs> I watch. I watch. <laughs> I watch comic book movies. Oh, wow. That was not what I thought you said. Okay. <laughs> it helped you the other day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Jeremy texts me a picture of some cup. I don't know where you're at, but he takes some one of my pictures. Kids. Like, yeah. Like, Who's this? Yeah. <laughs> was like, that was a Green Lantern. And then I, I, I upped my nerd cred and I said, that's the Hal Jordan, by right. the way. Yeah. Specifically oh, speaking, that's the Hal Jordan uh, you, Green Lantern. Your nerd cred doesn't need any upping, John. <laughs> you're, pretty, you're pretty up there. Ugh. <laughs> uh. Yeah, that was all right. Well, let's. Uh, since so, anyways, the, I don't want you to fall out of your chair. A, so on the AI, the the it was very buzzword heavy, and you can tell when. And and I, I believe it was Marissa that was doing the interviewing. Um, you know, she kept asking follow up questions and trying to clarify and trying to get more specifics on how AI is valuable. How can this be done better, or or what's the value proposition here? And I it kept going back to the buzzwords. It kept going back to the. The, the, the pie-in-the-sky AI of how it can do so much and analyze so much and do this and make these decisions and all this kind of stuff. And it, it made me think that really AI is one of those tools that people are going to go out and seek and buy because they need it and they happen to need it in Salesforce. So yes, they'll buy it from Salesforce. I don't think it's going to be someone's, someone comes up to your door and says, hey, I got this tool. It's called AI and here's why you need it. And so they're going to go, you know what? I didn't think about that. Yes, I need that. I don't think it's going to be that direction. I think it's going to be the opposite direction. People are going to be saying, I need AI. Do you have it? Yes, let me buy it. So you don't think Salesforce is good enough at selling that they can... I don't think AI is something that you can sell, to be honest, is what I'm saying. I think think in general terms, AI is not something you can sell. I think AI is one of those tools where people realize that they have a problem that they can't really solve efficiently with people and and they need they need the system to do that, and they're going to go out and seek the system that can do that. And Salesforce will be one of those players. You, I mean, you you totally could be right. Um, I think when Salesforce has a better AI story, it will it'll be much easier for them to sell it. I don't I don't know if that story overcome because it's so industry specific, and that's the thing. It's easy to sell CR. Well, not easy. I'm not going to say it's easy, but it's it's easier to sell CRM. Every every industry has to track customers. Every industry needs to track progress on their opportunities. Every industry needs to track leads. Uh, when it comes to marketing, every everybody needs a name to push an email to or to send a, a note to or to send a coupon to. That's that's across the board. But AI is not across the board. It's very specific. No. It's only valuable when it's, when it's applied to something well, very specific. Let's be clear. We're uh, what Salesforce calls AI and what the things we're talking about are really not AI. It's more well, it's really, machine learning. <clears throat> yeah. It's 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 but, I mean, analyzing large data I, sets I think, automated by a computer. I think these tools will get pretty good pretty soon. The the you know the email thing that helps you just be way smarter about email. The thing that realizes that you probably forgot to follow up with someone on something. The thing that can 
tell you which leads are good and which aren't. You know, but, the, but that's not that's not AI. I mean, well, I didn't say it was. I'm uh, saying well, it's not. I, but it's Einstein. What it's I'm Einstein. Saying, well, okay, it's it's Einstein. Yes, it's Einstein. But it, it's 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 native features of the system of a of a smarter f- system that you're describing. But it's not like it's not it's not a it's not the I, AI tool itself. It's not the machine learning. It's not the industry specific tool. It's not like Salesforce is going out and building a very specific tool for in AI for for a specific industry. I, I know they would love to, but I don't think they have the resources to do that. Well, and they Salesforce may use some of its Einstein tools to build specialized apps for certain industries, though. You know, apply. Oh, we're nowhere near. I, I don't know where AI is going to build app. It's Honestly, I mean, what you're describing, what you're describing, like a tool that's hard to sell, and that when people know when they need it, um, it to me is way more applicable to IoT. Like that's something that if people no, don't need I, it, you can't sell them IoT if they don't need it. If they, I mean, when people know when they have an IoT problem, when they need, you know, to to process a massive amount of data. I think the only the only responsible way to use AI is when you know you need it. It's just like anything else. So it, it's, it's automation. Okay. It's, well, it's we're automation. We're kind of going in circles here. No, but... we're not. It's automation. I, I just think that it's if getting... you try to automate too early, I, or if you try to optimize too early, you, you you've made a mistake. I, I get it. Premature optimization. I get it. I'm a software engineer. I just think the conversation's probably getting boring. Is all I'm saying, John. <laughs> Unless you want to, maybe we could do a an after dark where we just continue to argue about this until we both fall out of our chairs. <laughs> I'm not trying to argue. I'm just saying I I think that. That AI is not something you can sell. I, I think hear it's you. something that people will seek out and purchase for a very specific need. Duly noted, sir. And to that, <laughs> I say, <laughs> you, you can't say that, John. I can't say this that. is a family show. Is yeah. it? I thought you were wrapping up there. I was like, wait a minute, I got to do my closing stuff. Are no, we I wrapping wanted, up? I was just going to say a few, but <laughs> to that I say a few. Can't say that either. All right, um, are we done? Can we do closing? Mm-hmm. All right. So I just want to say that we. It seemed, I just looked looked at our numbers the other day, and it seems like we have we've we're definitely coming back from our Squarespace disaster. By the way, screw you, say Squarespace. <laughs> uh, but we still need help. So um, one thing that I, I think we forget to ask people to do is subscribe. So whether you use um, you know the podcast app or Overcast or Pocket Cast or any of these just things. Just install all the apps and subscribe on all the apps, right? Well, no, by the way, you know, you know I, and I didn't, I did, I'm not an expert on any of this stuff, but you know, apparently I heard someone say this, what gets you in the new and noteworthy sections of the iTunes store is a bunch of new subscriptions at once. Through, and it has to be through either iTunes or the you know Apple podcast app. Hmm. But yeah, that's, so if someone gets a bunch of new subscriptions, not, it's not downloads, because they don't even know your downloads. The downloads don't hit iTunes. They don't even know what your popularity really is, I don't think. Um, hmm. But uh, they do know how many people subscribe. And so if you get like a rush of new subscriptions in a week, you, you could hit the... As long as you... There's other things. You have to be compliant. Like you've got to have really good um, album artwork that's of a certain resolution. And yeah. you know, even, I've, I've even heard people say that um, iTunes wants to feature them because they've hit some numbers or whatever. And iTunes says, yeah, we, we want to we feature you, but we need you to we need a we need better art. We need a big art that's better, or something like that. We have better art than we had originally. Uh, I th- I do think I need to up the size of it. I think I'm at I'm at the bare minimum, and I think, really, I think I'm like fourteen hundred something pixels, and I think I need to be like at twenty eight hundred. Okay, so I might I might need. To I mean, not that when, and I, not that I think we're you know that we're gonna get and uh, whatever it's called news or new and noteworthy, but um, just subscribing. I think uh, you know it, it's it's so easy to forget, or you don't know. I mean, I. I, I, you know, I'll look at um, even like a couple of days after we release an episode. 
And half of our downloads are still from, in fact, I think it's more than half, are, are from a, a previous episode. I mean, more than half of people are behind by more than, you know, every, at any given time. Are saying people aren't listening in time? I'm just saying they. I think I just. I'm just saying if you don't subscribe, it's it's easy to forget, and like you know, you don't know when a new episode comes out. So uh, most of these tools have a subscribe feature. So if you don't have one that does, and you know they're out there, and they're most of them are free. So yeah, subscribe that helps. But anyway, I just want to thank everyone for coming back and finding us after yeah, after exactly. you thought we got <laughs> taken over by some weird church. Um, did you listen to the episodes? Of the church? No, I was too pissed off at them. <laughs> I didn't. I was on vacation. I was like, I'm not dealing with this. Anyway, so that helps. And, and just anyway, thank you for all you people who, who came back and found us after you thought we were dead. We're not dead yet. See, it's just a little. I know. Yeah, you keep saying that. It adds up. Trust me. I watched people get drunk on at wine tastings. Nothing but wine tastings. Are you supposed to spit that out? If you're going to taste 100 wines a day, probably so. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they give you a spit bucket to spit. They into. do. Oh, yeah. You can yeah. spit. Uh, anyway, other uh, normal things, share us on the socials. We haven't had a review in a long time. So if anyone wants to, you know, feels compelled to, you know, help give back a little bit, help us out a little bit, um, those are great. So, but, e- but even just, you know, clicking stars, five stars, whatever, or if we don't deserve five, whatever you think we deserve, uh, the stars really help too if you don't want to write a review. Uh, we have a Slack community, which we haven't talked about at all today, which is kind of weird. A what? The, our Slack community. It's a chat. It's a chat. It's a new chat application, John. It, uh, oh. called Slack. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, if you're not in a Slack community, you probably should join. We're nice people, and there are a lot of uh, really smart and funny people, and we help each other out, and we ask each other smart questions and dumb questions, and all you know. Oh, I, sometimes I forgot. There's vent. no I forgot. There's no dumb question. Sometimes we just vent. Yeah, that's true. A lot of venting. Just so, like I'm but, having issues. Yeah, so check us out. Just uh, all you have to do is go to gooddaysirpodcast.com. That's our website. You can just Google it too, right? I will say this. I, I thought about I, I, I am in the middle of telling people how to get there. Gooddaysirpodcast.com. Click on community and just all, you, all we need is your email address so we can send you an invite and then, you, and then you're in. Okay. Just go to the damn website. <laughs> you're getting a little belligerent. No, John. I'm not. Oh. <laughs> Cutting me off, bastard. <laughs> no, you cut me off. I was in the middle of telling people how to get to Slack. Anyway, so what was so important? I forgot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, questions and topics go to info at gooddaysirpodcast.com. And we've also been, uh, I believe, bereft of questions and topics. So please. Yeah, I have no reviews yeah. to read. I have we no have, topics. Yeah, we have nothing. We have nothing. That's sad. You get nothing. <laughs> Apparently, we get nothing. <laughs> this makes me sad. All right. So yeah, if you have questions you want us to talk about or topics or anything like that, you know. Give us a, give us an email because you see what happens when we have to do our own show. These are the topics. You get. Exactly, you just get this rambling, get drunk John, two hour disaster, and Jeremy being mean to John. Yeah, because he's no, drunk. I'm so mean, and that's what you get when you don't send us topics. Yep. All right, John, I'm done. I'm out of here. And to that, I say more whiskey. <laughs> and to that, I say good day, sir. Thank you. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir!